0: where women of color share their often winding and rarely linear career paths. I'm Yolanda Enoch and the podcast is back after a longer than expected hiatus. On today's show, I'm doing something a little different. If you're a fan of podcasts, your favorite shows have likely done a retrospective episode or replayed some of their favorite episodes recently. Last year, I did one and shared some of my favorite moments from previous episodes. But this year, I thought it would be cool to check back in with the previous guests and see what they are up to now. I thought about how we rarely stay at the same job or company for decades. Things change, opportunities are presented, and decisions have to be made. So in today's episode, you're going to hear from four previous guests have had career changes since our original interview. I'll link up to those original conversations in the show notes at howshedidit.club forward slash 15. First up is Kim View from episode 13.
1: My name is Kim Vu. I live and work in Santa Monica, California. I'm the executive chef and owner of VuCacious Catering. Um, we are a mid-sized catering company and we cater for both corporate events and private and social events. We do specialize in event-based catering. Well, I just opened a brand new restaurant called Kong Chen, and it's a whole nother new baby and a whole nother new animal. So why? Well, from a business standpoint, I really needed to change my liquor license, and, and buying a restaurant was one way to do that. Um, uh, but also, it was really time to expand the brand and the reach of the company overall.
0: I think that we had maybe mentioned that you were thinking about a restaurant, because yes. there was a time before where you
1: I were looked looking... at a lot of restaurants, and finally one hit, so it takes a long time for these deals to come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically after looking for two or three years we finally found a location that was a good fit for both our concept, uh, price wise, location wise, it finally all came together. Okay. So you have a business partner. I do. This location has a business partner, Bucatious Catering does not. Right. So how did you find your
0: business partner? Well, we
1: actually know each other through our kids. So our both of our kids are best friends. Oh. And so we've known each other since they were born. They went to the same like daycare preschool together. Uh, so we've known each other for the last seven years. Um, and we both opened our primary businesses around the same time. So we watched each other grow our businesses in hospitality. Um, And of course, every time we got together at family gatherings or birthday parties, we were the two people in the same industry just chatting it up the whole time. Mm -hmm. So after really like watching each other for a long time, um, we had talked about doing a project together. And we started looking about three years ago. And it finally came to fruition. So talk to me about that process. How did you know that this was it? So... In hospitality and for business people in general, there's a couple of different ways to approach it. For a lot of chefs, what happens is uh, they will have a very specific concept that they are trying to bring to market. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to find the box to fit that specific concept. Um, And so, you know, for example- Was that your case? No, that wasn't the case for this location. So for me, I actually, I've worked in so many different concepts and one of the things that I'm really good at and what I do at Vocation Catering is that I'm really good at ideation. And so, and bringing different concepts and ideas to life. For me, Ideating a concept is not—it's something that I do every day and it's something that's not particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. Our approach to really finding the business really came down to the real estate. Um, You know, the restaurant business can be very difficult to be in, but it really comes down to can you pay your bills? And the biggest bill that you have is the rent. And so it would be very easy to think like, oh, you know, we're in a high traffic area or we're in a very desirable area, but of course the rents are going to be higher Mm -hmm. than that. So um, what my business partner and I did was that we actually went at several different properties. One of the things that we decided early on was that we weren't going to do a full, from the ground, up build-out. We weren't going to go into an empty space. We weren't going to go into a change of use situation. Change of use, what that means is that you go, like, you can buy a, you know, mechanic shop and transfer, you know, transform that into a restaurant. Our first key decision was that we wanted to be on the west side, and that's where we both live, so that makes sense for us. Um, The second key decision was that we weren't going to do from a ground-up build-out. And so what that meant for permitting and for otherwise is that we were going to buy a closed or closing restaurant or a restaurant that was available for sale. We put a few realtors on notice, and then we kept looking ourselves. So there's a lot of resources for people who want to open businesses of any kind. There's a lot of resources that you can have access to online. And then in addition to that, um, you know, we have very good realtors that we work with. So over the years, they kept sending us deals. They kept selling us, you know, businesses for sale, um, and opportunities. And we'd always go, look, you know, calculators out and blazing. Yeah. So um, it, we did offer on other places, and for various reasons, we walked away from those deals. Yeah. Um, this particular one became the right fit regarding location, pricing, timing. And also concept. So regarding the concept itself, what we usually do is we fit the concept to the space. Okay. You know, it's never a good idea to put a square peg into a round hole. And you know, for example, we looked at a space in Marina Del Rey that would have been perfect as like a wine bar. We mm-hmm. you knew it was going to be a wine bar, which meant cheese, charcuterie, you know, American fare, but very easy to eat. You know, very easy to go with wine bar food. Mm-hmm. But this particular concept, it, this was going to be our jewel box. Um, which is why you see it decorated like this, but also the jewel box for the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so we put one of our most special concepts here, which is new Vietnamese cuisine. Mm -hmm. We are a culmination of our backgrounds. And in my training, you know, I'm a French trained chef who cooked in, I'm a French trained chef. My first restaurant I worked in was actually Cajun seafood. There's not a lot of good Cajun food out here. So that might be something interesting Mm -hmm. uh, as a concept. You know, I'm an Angelino now, but by way of Texas. And of course I miss real pit barbecue. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different things I can do, and of course, you know, being from Texas and then moving to Los Angeles, the exposure to Mexican food has always been there, um, and of course, Tex-Mex food, which is not Mexican food, yeah. <laughs> our own Texas version of that. But it's it's I've worked in so many different concepts and had to ideate so many concepts on the catering side that it's something that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So you know, you look at the neighborhood, you look at what people need and what they want, and you give them what they need and what they want, you know. You know, we're really in a dining desert. There's not really a lot of upscale dining available here. Um, You've got to go a ways to the east and the west to get any sort of upscale dining whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, And additionally, you know, there's not a lot or any modern Vietnamese food on the west side. Plenty of pho shops, banh mi shops, but if you want to know more about Vietnamese food, this is really the only place that you can do it. What has been the most
0: challenging part in, it could be either in getting this space ready to open or that you've learned or the challenges with starting it?
1: Well, I would think that the first challenge I should mention is our fast turnover. So I have amazing business partner, Don Andy. So once we took possession of the space, we actually turned the space over in 90 days. We opened 90 days later. Um, As you can imagine, the way it was in here was seven contractors stepping all over everything, doing staff training right in the middle of all of that. I would say that, as challenging as that was, it was extremely exhilarating, and it was exciting. Um, when you open with that kind of speed, I think that it's difficult to do everything perfectly the right way, the way that you know things should be done. So say, for example, in hiring, that might be you know more than one interview, proper paperwork, background checks, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when you turn a space over in 90 days, doing everything exactly the right way, um, the way you know it should be done is uh, damn near impossible. Yeah. <laughs> what have you learned about yourself in this process? It's just been a wonderful reminder of how much I love this and how exhilarating that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an area where I have very high competence and of course in any area that you have high competence, that confidence, that breeds confidence. And so it's been a real pleasure to work on this project. Mm-hmm.
0: If you had to pick, maybe two scales if someone was thinking about opening up a restaurant what do they absolutely must have?
1: I think that they need to have a strong eye for numbers and analysis Um, I will say this which hopefully all of your uh, listeners can appreciate Um, the purpose of a business is to make money I did not open a charity Yes. (laughs) and in particular a food business or any hospitality business is a pennies business A little bit of waste here and there, a little bit of breakage here and there, it actually adds up to so much. Every day, every week, every month, and every year. And I think that if you do not have the stomach to take a look at the numbers and to make key decisions to increase your numbers where they should be, your top line sales, and decrease your numbers where they should be, um, then this is not a business for you. So numbers is the number one key. Mm -hmm. I think the second thing that people really need to have in a hospitality business—I mean, there's so many things. If you asked me for 10 things, I could tell you 10 things. But you only asked me for two, is that I think that you really have to have the heart of hospitality. You really have to live to serve other people, and you have to really care and pay attention to that guest experience. And it's really stretches not just food and beverage, but it's the service, the decor, the comfort of the guests. Um, and to be accommodating in a way, and I always, I'm always, i always quick to tell any of my servers or anyone who works with me, like, we do serve people, but we are not servants. And I think that there needs to be a distinction there about how we work and, and work with our customers. There are very few policies we have here in place that are so set in stone that we couldn't accommodate someone at our business. It's just a matter of very clear communication.
0: I will link up to your website and all of that. This restaurant is very sexy, so it's, like, the perfect date place to come to. Um, So, yeah. Yolanda, would you
1: like a special offer for your listeners? Yes. Okay, so I know your blog is called, your your podcast is called How She Did It, right? Mm -hmm. And so if any of your listeners come in and tell us that they heard the program on How She Did It, I would love to offer them either, not both, a $1 appetizer or a $1 drink.
0: Next up is Heidi Vaccarano from Episode
2: 8. My name is Heidi Vaccarano. I have a law firm called Vaccarano Law, and it's myself and my associate. I'm also the managing director of Girls in Tech, the Los Angeles chapter. And Girls in Tech is a global nonprofit organization that educates, engages, and empowers women in technology. Well, my life is completely different. In June of last year, I joined a mid-sized law firm called Wolf, Rifkin, Shapiro, Schulman, and Rabkin as senior counsel in their entertainment department. I've been there um, now about seven months, so it's been a huge transition for myself. I closed my practice down after being solo for five years It was an easy transition from the point of view that um, I just uh, merged my clients and my practice into theirs. But from a standpoint of a totally new environment of going from working on your own to working with 55 other attorneys, it's a huge life change for me. How did this happen? It was sort of serendipitous in the sense that um, I am, friendly with uh, one of the partners there now, who is the son of the owner of the law firm, and him and I had represented a mutual client. He did some corporate work while I was representing the client on the IP entertainment side, and we got along really well, and he had reached out to me in early March if I was interested in joining a law firm. It never dawned on me that this would go anywhere Uh, But it turns out that the two other attorneys in my department are people that I've known since I have been working in the industry in 2002. So two lunches later, I accepted the offer and uh, two weeks after that, I started.
0: What has been the biggest surprise? Because even before you went into private practice, you worked at another law firm but it was small so what are the the differences and you know how has what you have needed to evolve into how is that at this new firm
2: to be honest this is the biggest place I've ever worked for the last place I worked at was a seven-person all women law firm and I went to a place like I said with 55 attorneys and it's completely different. Um, There is several different layers, AKA departments to every thing you're doing. But again, that really is the support system that I have now. When you're on your own, I would have to not only network, with, uh, to bring in a client, I would also have to do the retainer letter, ingest them into my system, do billing and stuff like that. Now there are different departments that handle that for me. So having that admin support is life changing for me.
0: This is really like your first time really going through like a recruiting process, would you say?
2: And it was not the standard process, but it was definitely a taste of what, of that is like. I had two lunches, met with other colleagues in the department, got to know a little bit more about what their needs were. I'm really happy from the perspective that when you're applying for jobs, you usually like doubt yourself because you see all the responsibilities and what they're looking for and you're like, oh, do I do that? Can I cover that? But going into this, I knew that the type of work that they wanted to do was something that I'd been doing for over a decade. So I knew that I would be able to handle that. For me, it's been more of an education on learning how to work in a larger company and work with other individuals collaborating or not collaborating or what it is to learn how to manage those expectations and manage people.
0: Where you are now, what is a flat side or something that you... um, want to work on that you think will help you be better in your current role
2: my biggest thing and my goal for 2019 is to up level my leadership skills so i'm doing a lot of work on learning what it is to be a leader um, from the perspective of i'm not necessarily in charge of this department but i'm still Someone in this company who is trying to bring about change and bring in new and innovative ideas. So I'm really working on how to be a compassionate and collaborative leader. Mm, like that.
0: Okay. Well, congratulations on the new gig. And Thank you. Maybe in a year, we discovered that the wolf, Rifkin, and all of that, there's a a Vacarano in there somewhere oh, too. From your <laughs> lips to God. <laughs> Next is Deanne Davis-Brooks from Episode 7.
3: My name is Deanne Davis-Brooks. I am currently an associate professor at Salem College for Women. I teach a variety of courses dealing with physical activity, sports, and human movement. Uh, so that's what I do full-time professionally. I also am a track coach. I've been coaching track since I was an undergraduate student. So I coach a youth track club, the Durham Starters, and we compete for USA Track and Field on the age group level. And then I also coach at a couple of high schools in Greensboro and Burlington, North Carolina. I am still an assistant professor, but I changed and now I am at UNC Greensboro. So why did you change? I'm just always looking to grow as a professional. I think it came across in my last interview that I loved being at Salem. At UNCG, I have all of those same benefits. The part that's added to that is is just resources. At UNCG, we have an awesome um, Center for Teaching Innovations, and they put on workshops that help me to be a better teacher. And these are the types of workshops that people pay a lot of money to attend. And I get it as a benefit of being an employee of UNCG.
0: So how did that happen? Did you find an opportunity or
3: did they reach out to you? I graduated from UNCG. I went to work outside of UNCG, but I maintained a lot of strong contacts had several collaborations going on with people at UNCG over the years. so the the EDD the, the degree that I have is for scholar practitioners. What that meant basically is that I was able to study at a doctoral level um, a broad subject area. When I graduated and went to teach at small colleges, that was a great benefit because instead of being having a narrow background in one particular research area, I had an advanced level of understanding at a number of in a number of different subjects. Fast forward to last year uh, at UNCG, where they have a number of very accomplished PhDs teaching courses. In a department where they are, they're going after grants and doing huge research projects where they need a person who is able to teach a number of classes in the department to fill in when people go out on research lead. So that's sort of a unique position at the university level at um, a research type institution in a department where you have a generalist, which is my sort of identity as a kinesiologist in a department like the one at UNCG. So all that to say, when it was time for them to hire the person that would meet the needs in their department, they knew what I had been doing and they knew that I had done that well because of the collaborations and the connections that I had maintained since I graduated as a student. So when the job was posted a number of my friends in the department just called to tell me that it was there, that encouraged me to consider it. So I wasn't really looking to leave Salem. I really liked it. But just upon closer reflection, and I realized that it would be a good move for me.
0: So something that you said was... You have maintained the collaboration and the connection with the people there. So what did that look like in practice? What were you doing?
3: Over the years, I have collaborated on research projects. So folks there who are PhDs, who are tenure track professors who need to do research as part of their job is to contribute to the knowledge base in our field. So they have to do research. I have a particular skill set and perspective as a researcher and practitioner that would be valuable to those projects. And so I would collaborate with them. Over the years, I've been an advisor to several doctoral students. So I served along with my colleagues at UNCG as um, like a doctoral dissertation committee member. Over the years, I, we have an awesome online EDD program that brings in a cohort of 20 doctoral students every year at UNCG. They have a one-week residency at the beginning of the program. So over the last several years, I've been a part of sort of the welcoming committee when students come to campus and they're getting acclimated to UNCG. I've been on a panel that just helps them to understand what they're getting into, helps to introduce them to the the program. So things like that, I just was always on and off campus. Um, Those people there were my professional network. And it helped that I still lived in Greensboro the entire time. I worked in Greensboro for four years, and then Salem isn't far away either. So it was easy for me to maintain those contacts in a working way, but it was also easy for me to get on campus and physically be in their presence. So I think all of that worked to my advantage. Plus, along the way, I was also proving that I could do the job at a high level. And when it came time for them to hire a person, of course, I went through the same interview process as everybody else, but um, I still think that just my familiarity helped me to turn out as the top candidate. So there wasn't even uh, sort of a written job description that I aspired to, if that makes sense. I didn't know that this is what I wanted until after it was created.
0: So what have you learned about yourself?
3: I think what I have learned is that my process as a professional know has really worked out for me. And that has always been to take opportunities as they come and to do my very best to work hard and to excel in whatever situation I'm in with the expectation that the next great opportunity will follow because of my performance. I think one of the other benefits of being in an organization like UNCG is that it's it's bigger. So there are more opportunities within the university. So if I want to get experience doing something different i want to get experience as an administrator eventually i think i can find those opportunities without having to make a total career change and finally we have jess puccinelli from episode six
4: i am running a business called hot hope it is a socially conscious gifting studio based out of here los angeles and what i do is i create gift boxes i make gift boxes Using products that give back to a good cause or positively impact the world. And our whole mission is just to make it easy for people to give good.
0: I interviewed you in 2017. Hold hope. You're you're doing that. Yep. It's going great. And then I'm on your email newsletter list and I get this email mm-hmm. saying that it's shutting down. What the heck? <laughs> like no yes
4: yeah I know it was time so here's the thing if things are moving along they're going fine but they're not going great just a product-based business it takes a lot of capital to make it go so what I started to see I'm like really good at like identifying patterns so I'm looking through and I'm like man all right only way this is going to work is probably through all corporate. But like to get that in a flow and the amount of business we would need to do, it's just going to take a lot. Like the logistics of it are really tough. And side note, I end up talking to people who have worked for some of the best gifting companies, literally like in our, in our country. And they're like, it's the same problem for every company because you're buying outside products, you're putting it into gift boxes. They're, just, they're like, there's just a lot of financial nuances that are hard to predict and that like most of them have a really hard time making money. So I was like cool all right I, you know I'm I'm on it. So not making much money and I'm thinking beginning of 2018 I, I need to make money period just as a human being like we need you know dollars. Yes, yes. So I end up landing in a in a marketing role with this company called Every Table. Yes, so good company. Yeah, they're awesome. Like it just takes over. There's no capacity for ho hope so I would do you know, a job or two here, um, or sell something here and there. Like I couldn't keep up with it. And, but I was like, I'm not supposed to close it yet. And it was still bringing in some really interesting opportunities just for me as a person. So I would take those and I just, I was like, I'll know the moment I'm supposed to close it. Every table ended up being really taxing and kind of the final straw on my burnout. That was probably long overdue. <laughs> Beginning of October of 2018, I left every table and a couple of weeks later after i'd like come down from that was just sitting there I was thinking okay well i could probably like pull some stuff together for holiday and just really push for holiday and i started to think about all of it and i was like oh my heart's not in it and i'm not supposed to do this anymore i didn't feel like guilty i just felt okay it's time and now i know it's time and i recognize that like that things run their course so i'm going to just make sure that i actually close it and I, the reason i say that is because i think we're in a time where people just vacate businesses. They just leave them. They literally will just like leave an Instagram, Mm. (laughs) like leave an Instagram open. You never knew what happened. You never knew. Nobody acknowledges to the people who this was built for that this thing doesn't exist anymore. So I was like, I felt really compelled to close the loop to thank everyone, but to finish and finish well. I was able to see the effect that it had on people, which was really powerful and an unexpected gift. But then, also to feel like, "Okay, cool, this is actually finished, and now i'm I feel free to move on to the next thing, or whatever that looks like.
0: Um, I know that your husband was really supportive and kind of pushed you to when you were initially deciding to maybe pursue Ho Ho. And you had said something. I remember we talked about it in your interview where you were like, oh, I'm going to give myself six months. And he was like, no, you have three months. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) yeah. how was he involved in this process?
4: I love that you asked that. So he always asked me a couple of questions. If I decide, if I'm deciding to leave something or do something, he asked me, of course, about my motives. So. And and check my motive. So are you doing this because you're afraid? Or are you doing this because there's something more and you trust the timing? So uh, we went through that. Always like, you know, hey, listen, if you're going to end something, you need to be in the right state of mind. You can't do it because you're overwhelmed. You can't do it because, you know, you, you have to be at like peace before you do it. So he checked in about that. And I was like, yeah. I'm at peace. And I I was like, and I don't have a desire to move forward. so he was like, okay, then, you know, that, that feels like it works and he goes and he just looked at me. He's like, I hope you know, you didn't fail. He's like, you've seen this thing all the way through and you, you're finishing it and you're finishing it really well. So you don't, his main thing was like, you don't need to look at this as, as a pass or failure. And at the same time, I think that there, there were wins. Obviously there was parts of it that were, absolute wins and then parts of it that failed that didn't work it didn't you know just on a practical simple sense like oh that didn't make the revenue i needed it to make to sustain itself so that that was not a win that was a fail and i'm okay with that i think you just trust me and trust my intuition implicitly and i'm so thankful for that because i'm like i i'm not supposed to be working right now and he's like okay like that's okay like i know you i know your ethic. I'm behind you, I'll back you. Let's let's just figure out and strategize on how we're going to do this until you know the next thing hits and the right thing comes about.
0: So what have you learned yeah. about yourself through starting and stopping Hope? What have you learned?
4: Ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I've learned that I'm capable, first of all. I'm really capable and I'm really tough. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I'm really tough. <laughs> Um, I've learned that my marriage can withstand some hard tensions and hard times um, and that it's important in that way. And then I've learned not everything has to be a life thing and that pivoting is okay and reworking something is okay. I've also learned that when I feel the most alive and I feel the most connected to myself and to others is when I'm leading a team and when I get to pull out these incredible unknown and sometimes known but uncultivated qualities in other people. That's like if I could do that for the rest of my life, I I would just be beyond fulfilled.
0: You officially shut down hope hope in was that October or November? In October. Okay. Have you figured out what you want to do next or anything like that? Yeah.
4: So I think I don't have a I don't have a fully formed thought yet. Uh, a couple of the things that I realized is that over the course of my career, I haven't chosen an industry necessarily. So Um, What I'm good at by trade and what I enjoy doing is marketing and public relations and anything that's like, I don't even want to say necessarily storytelling, but um, I love, I just, I love figuring out how to position a company, strategize around it and create these moments and experiences for people to feel fully alive and whatever in whatever capacity they're touching the business, like that's my, it's just like the best. I know that about myself. I left every table with this like definitive life goal that at some point I will shift what is acceptable for leadership in America. And hopefully like on a global level that um, we would require more of our leaders because... Mm. We have to, mm-hmm. like, not only does the bottom line depend on it, but like the mental health of the people we work with and the, the cultures and the states of our companies depend on it. And so the success of our companies depend on it. And I would love to be a CMO of a company and be able to impact the culture from within, but also to really hone in on how a company can impact culture from you know, from itself as well. The industry in which I do it is a little bit less to be seen. I'm leaning towards TV and film. And that actually comes back to the question you asked me about my husband. He's in the industry. And one day he and I were talking and he was having a moment of like, am I in the, am I doing the right thing? Is this where I should be? And I looked at him and I'm like, dude, we put all of our eggs in this basket. And it was the first time I said, we, I usually would say, you put all your eggs in this basket. You got to, like, you got to dig, you got to keep going. But I said, we. And I was like, wait, I've never chosen an industry. My skills are transferable. There's a total possibility that I can get into this industry and we together can create something, some company somewhere down the line or even right now that begins to impact culture in a really palatable way. That's sort of what he and I are ruminating on, what I'm trying to figure out. Does that look like going? you know, to work for a studio or an agency or something like that? Or does that look more like, you know, running something ourselves, Uh, freelancing? I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the show. All things discussed in this episode can be found on the show notes page at howshedidit.club forward slash 15. If you like this episode, I would love it if you shared it with your friends and also rated the podcast on iTunes. This helps other people find the show. Go to howshedidit.club forward slash rate for instructions.